journey into the Bible and explore its hidden text and rich wisdom. Join Adol Kazilski Mondays at 1 p.m. for the trip of a lifetime. Shavua Tov and welcome to everybody. It is Monday. It's the middle of the month. It's the 15th day in the month of Elul. We have, gosh, just two weeks left till we say goodbye to 5781. Um, it is an introspective month and a month where we are questioning and looking at what it is that we have achieved and what it is that we fell short of. And in doing that, what better way to actually understand things but to look back into the Bible and see the way our forefathers navigated through life because that will actually give us insight. So welcome, welcome. I'm excited to be with you. I hope you are too. If you'd like to join the conversation, 34519 is our SMS line, 061-895-1019, our telegram number. We are studying the book of Genesis. Um, we are learning an incredible chapter now. We started the Pasha of Ayishlach last week. We are uh, learning about how Yaakov came to meet up with his brother again. And as said last week, and I'm probably going to be saying it right throughout all the um, <clears throat> the weeks that we are learning here, particularly about Esav, that Mase Avot Siman Lebanim, that our... Um, Whatever our forefathers did is a sign of how we are to navigate through the trials and tribulations of Galut. And certainly we can see there's no question. As we are coming to the end of the year, and I've done a lot of uh, thinking and introspection about what has happened, there is no question that we are an active childbirth. We are shedding ourselves of the world that we know, and we are hopefully bringing in a new world that will be a world of Mashiach a world of redemption, a world of health, a world of happiness, but of real things. And, um, you know, trying to draw analogies from what it is that the, the Bible says, the Torah says, and today is actually quite uncanny. So join me for this journey, and we are going to pick up, I believe, on verse, I'll tell you which verse we were in, on verse... Eight. Chapter 32, verse 8. That's where we stopped. I remember reading it um, aloud at the end and said, you're going to have to wait till next week. Um, just for those that have tuned in now and perhaps did not listen to what happened last week. Okay. Uh, essentially, uh, Esav, um, Yaakov hears that Esav is on his way. He's coming as like a marauding madman, which Esav was. He didn't have too much uh, forgiveness in his heart, and he was there to attack him. And Yaakov is preparing for that confrontation. He was preparing it in three different ways. One is by diplomacy, another by prayer, and, and then another physically preparing for war in case he has to defend himself. And uh, where we left off was that very interestingly, very, if I could say, strangely, the verse reads as follows, by Yira um, Yaakov Me'od, Yaakov became very, very frightened. By Yetzerloi, and he began to worry. By Yachatz Etaam Asher Ito, Beetatzon, Beetabaka, Beetagmalim, Mishne Machanot. He chooses to divide up the people that are with him 
um, and the sheep and the cattle and the camels into two camps. Now, if we are talking about our forefather, um, uh, Yaakov, and the tzaddik that he was, why on earth would you become frightened and worried? You know, we speak all the time about imuna, about faith and bitachon and trust in God. And it's one of the things that I think we have been challenged enormously, um, particularly now in the last 18 months um, during COVID, to have that, that clarity that God is running the world and that he is in charge of everything. Um, and it's, it's natural. We all understand that it's natural that we, uh, that we get frightened, that we get nervous, that we get all, you know, we get all too hissed when things aren't going our way. And, you know, it doesn't look like things are going to pan out right. But we're ordinary people. Here we are talking about Yaakov. What? To become frightened? To, to begin to worry? What is going on? So the answer to this um, is a very interesting one. It's a, it's, it's a very uh, subtle one. But we know that when it comes to Tzadikim, they, they, they don't worry and have anxiety attacks like we do over physicality, over practicality. Why? Because we have the insight and the knowledge well, they have the insight and the knowledge and the belief, and they believe it with all their hearts that Hashem runs the world. Okay, they're aware of Hashem's greatness, of God's greatness. They know that Hashem would not overlook even, even the smallest thing. But what they are also acutely aware is, did they rise to the occasion? Did they commit some minor sin that would render them unworthy of having God's promise? Um, of them fulfilled. And that was what made Yaakov um, anxious and um, he began to worry. He started questioning had he stepped up to the plate. What were his concerns? Well, the first is that Asaph had been living in the land of Israel. We know the land of Israel offers extra um, um, protection and there is a merit in living in the land of Israel. Yaakov had lived elsewhere for 20 years, and he thought maybe his spiritual um, his spiritual merit was diminished, and Asaph was much stronger simply because of the geographical places that they found themselves in. The second thing that um, in his mind Asaph had definitely an upper hand was that Yaakov, that Asaph kept the commandment of Kibud Av, the commandment of honoring his father perfectly. Um, he hadn't. He, he, he was unable to fulfill the mitzvah of Kibud Av Aim, um, because he had left for 20 years. He had gone in to Galat. And even though, yes, his parents had told him to go, the condition was that he was supposed to stay there for seven years, not for 20 years. So he was, he, been away much for, much longer than anticipated, and he thought to himself, perhaps he would be punished for staying longer. The third thing that was bothering Yaakov when he was doing a cheshbon nefesh, when he was doing an accounting of the soul, was that he didn't study Torah to the extent that he did um, 
when he was staying at home. Remember, he was a Yoshev Ohalim. He sat in the tents. He studied Torah. Torah has an incredible merit. Now, for the last 20 years, um, he was very busy tending Lavan's sheep, and it could be that his spirit, spiritual status might be might have been further diminished um, because he married, had children, had to worry about Parnosa, etc., etc. Another opinion says the reason why he got worried and he, you know, he, he started getting nervous was that after he dispatched the messengers, he chided himself. He changed his mind and he realized maybe what I did was wrong. Hashem had said to him, I will be with you in everything that you do. And him going out and sending messengers, um, kind of was like in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, a subconscious way was a way of saying, well, I didn't trust in God that God will protect me. Um, and maybe that was why, you know, like he, uh, there's cause to worry. So in all of these reasons that we see, whether it is that, um, he felt that his, well, the, the underlining things that his spiritual stature was undermined, that he hadn't learned enough Torah, that uh, he had lived outside the land of Israel, that he hadn't fulfilled the mitzvah of, uh, of, of Kibbut Ava'im, all of these things would have played into his mind and he felt that he spiritually perhaps didn't have enough, enough schut, enough merit um, to wage the war against Esau. Certainly it was not on a physical plane. And that's a very, very powerful lesson for us. You know, um, I think a lot of our anxiety and our fear today, in a sense, is misplaced insofar as we we start fearing and getting nervous about externalities. Like, when is this COVID going to finish? And is, is this right? And, and look what's happening in here. And look what's happening there. And it's, I'm not a denier of reality. There certainly is a reality out there. But how much emotional energy do we actually spend looking inside of ourselves and saying, what is inside of me that needs to grow more? What can I do better? Where am I falling short? Um, Sadly, as human beings, we spend far less time asking those questions and much more time, in a sense, wasting our time with why the government is doing things wrong, why this COVID is still hanging around, why Afghanistan is fire. It just goes on and on and on and on. Um, and maybe even closer to home, why other people are behaving when the only thing we should be worrying about is why we are who we are today. This is 101.9 Chai FM. Chai FM, your station of choice since 2008. Right, we were talking about uh, fear and anxiety and where it is placed and where it is not. Um, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you agree with me? Do you disagree? Do you have a comment? 34519 is our SMS line 061-895-1019. Just before we go on to the next next verse, I just want to add in um, one comment, which I think that all of us who are fortunate still to have parents, um, it's it's good to dwell on it. Uh, look at the difference between Asav and Yaakov. Asav was a good for nothing. Um, he was a, a murderer, a liar, um, a person very much entrenched in the physical world with all his physical needs, you know, wanting to be met. And um, Yaakov was the 
complete opposite, a spiritual person, a person um, of morality, a person of honesty, a person of integrity. And what bothered him? That the mitzvah of uh, kibud av va'em, um, that and particularly kibud av, the mitzvah of honoring the fa- his father, would um, override all his spiritual um, acquisitions and merits that he had done, which just shows us how very, very important it is to honor our parents. Um, and it's something that now that we're coming to Elul, that we should just, you know, give a little bit of mind space to and ask ourselves what more could we do to honor our parents if we have we are in the fortunate position of still having them around. Right. Um, verse number nine, Vayomer, so he said to himself, this is Yaakov speaking, Im yavo esav el machane ha'achas v'hikahu v'haya ha'machane ha'nishar lifleta. Remember we said that he divided the camp into two, and what was he thinking about that, that if Esav comes to one camp and attacks it, the remaining camp will survive. Well, here is some practical advice and some very, very important advice. It's advice that for sure you have heard if you, um, you know, in the course of your life, as, as everybody tries to build up a future, um, this is a lesson to teach us that a person should not keep all his possessions in one place. Do not keep all your eggs in one basket. Um, neither should one invest all your money in one deal. It is something that um, makes a lot of sense. Sometimes people still make that mistake. Um, and it's always good to divide up one's assets, whatever they may be, into various baskets as opposed to one. Yaakov understood that, and so that's why he divided up um, into in, in, into the various camps. Now, there's an interesting comment from a Rabbi Yehuda Sharaf. He's a great rabbi that lived in the 1600s, between, I think, 1602 and 1675. He said that Yaakov was uncertain whether he should engage Esav in battle. And he actually brings examples of four different uh, people who had to engage um, with their enemies. And I'd like to discuss it with you because um, once we go through it all, we can actually understand why Jacob behaved the way that we did. Well, the first king <clears throat> that um, engaged with his enemies was King David. He said, as we know in Psalms, I have pursued my enemies and I have overtaken them, meaning that he would not turn around until they were destroyed. That's that's King David. He just went out and he said, I'm not scared of my enemies. I'm just going to beat the heck out of them and I will not stop until they are destroyed. Then there was a King Asa. Um, you can pick him up in uh, the book of Chronicles. He went and said, I do not have the strength to wipe out my enemies. I will pursue them, but I will let you, God, deliver the final blow. Okay, and that's in fact what happened. Hashem struck down the the Ethiopians before Asa and Yehuda, and the Egyptians fled, and then Asa and the people who were with him pursued them to a place called Gerar, and that's where they were overthrown. Nobody remained alive. They were shattered. But 
God intervened here. He said, I will pursue them. I will chase after them. But I, 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 Hashem, you've got to give the final blow. He, he got Hashem's help as opposed to, um, King David who said, I will not turn my back until the job's done. We then have Yehoshaphat, also one of the Jewish kings, who said, I cannot pursue my enemies. I will sing praise to Hashem and let him take care of them. Okay? So basically what he was saying is, in my case, we're helpless against this large army who's attacking us. We don't know what to do, but we're looking to you, Hashem, for help. And so what happened there is they began to sing. They began to offer praise to Hashem. And Hashem caused the miracle. He panicked the men of Ammon, of Moab, of Mount Seir, um, who had come to invade um, Judah. And they were stricken down. And basically, that was how Jehoshaphat got over it. Then we have the king Cheskiyahu, okay, which you can look up in the book of Malachim. He said, I cannot pursue my enemies, and I cannot even sing praise to God. I will remain in bed and God will destroy them, right? So what happened there was that what ha- that that's exactly what happened with him. That night an angel of God came forth, it struck down the camp of the Syrians, and in the morning they were all corpses, and Hashem came and saved them there. So we've got four different people um, behaving in completely different ways. King David was the fighter. He went out and he was unrelenting until he got over his uh, uh, over it, we've got King Asa who said, I, I have it, I, I have the ability, I will do what I have to do, but God, you have to do the final blow. We've got Jehoshaphat who said, I can't, Hashem, I'm just going to rely completely on you. Um, I'll sing the praises and I'll be con- completely connected to you. And then we have poor old Cheskiah who said, I have no power, let Hashem, um, let, let, let Hashem uh, destroy, and, and that's in fact which he did. And you can see each king made a different request, and God answered each one according to his prayers. Now, as Rabbi Sharaf explained, that these kings had reduced expectations because of their humility. They did not consider themselves saints, and they were afraid that they might have sinned. And each one was more concerned than the one before him. By the time it came to Cheskiahu, he was completely, completely like finished. He said, I, I, I can't even get out of bed to do this. When it comes to Yaakov, God says to Yaakov, return to the land of your fathers and I will be with you. Now, Yaakov was therefore not sure whether or not to engage Asav in battle with all his strength, trusting that God will help him. It was equally possible that God did not want him to fight against Asav, that God would take care of him. And if, if this was God's meaning, then maybe he shouldn't wage war against Asaph at all because war causes God to start reviewing carefully, you know, your deeds. And this was the reason that three of the four mentioned kings didn't want to engage in war. So what did Yaakov do? He said, I'm going to divide my camp into two camps. He left the first camp unarmed with instructions not to fight at all. And the second camp on, on the other hand, he gave them a lot of arms and he said to them, you're going to be well armed. And this is what he reasoned. If Asaph attacks the armed camp, it's a sign then that God wants me to engage Asaph in battle. 
I do not wish to remain with my hands tied, because then the remaining camp will certainly survive since God has promised that he would save me. And therefore, he responded to Asaph's threat in three ways. Firstly, with, as we said, diplomacy. He sent gifts to Asaph to blind him, because bribery can always accomplish its end. He, he prayed. He prayed that God should rescue him, and then he also prepared for war. Because if need be, he would have to meet Asaph in battle. And the lesson here is that when we look at what we are confronting, we need to understand the dynamics of everything that's happening because it's not always one way is the right way and there is no other. Sometimes things can be pretty complex and um and and there's subtleties, and one needs to take back a step and actually answer all these questions. There's an interesting uh, Zohar that comes from our mystical, uh, the mystical work, the Zohar, that talks about a story about Rabbi Chia and Rabbi Yossi. They were once traveling um, on, on on a road, and they saw a man approaching them, and this man was wearing a talus and tefillin. Okay, and in, in the olden days, a lot of people wore it all day. They didn't just wear it when they prayed in the morning. It was all day. But what they noticed that under the talus and tefillin, they saw a sword. They saw that he was heavily armed. So Rabbi Chia said to Rabbi Yossi, "Look, there's two possibilities here. This man may be a good Jew." who will not walk even a single step without observing the mitzvahs. Or he may be wearing his talis and tefillin in order to fool people. What do you think? Like, it could be that he's righteous, that, you know, he wants to stay in a state of, 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 of heightened spirituality. Or he's a con man and he's, 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 he's hiding his, his arms. So Rabbi Yossi, Reprimands Rabbi Chia says the Zohar and he says, doesn't that, doesn't the Mishnah teach us give everyone the benefit of the doubt? We have a tradition that when a person sets out on a journey, he should prepare himself with three things. Where from? From Yaakov. Diplomacy, prayer, and war. Okay, we saw that Yaakov made arrangements for these three things when he went out. Therefore, it could be possible that this Jew also made these three preparations. He's wearing his talis and tefillin in case he has to pray. And if he must fight, he's well armed. Well, they landed up approaching the man, and the man, they greeted him, but alas, the man did not greet them back. So Rabbi Chia says, this shows that he's lacking at least one of the preparations. One of them is diplomacy, and there's no greater diplomacy than a friendly greeting. Rabbi Yossi replies, agreed, but perhaps he was immersed in prayer or Torah study, and he couldn't interrupt. When they finished that conversation, the stranger joined the two rabbis, and the three continued together. The stranger didn't say a word. Rabbi, after a while, Rabbi Chia and Rabbi Yossi dropped behind the stranger, and they began to discuss something in Torah. The man suddenly turned around, he approached them, and he said, Shalom Aleichem. When I did not return your greeting earlier, what did you suspect? Nothing, said Rabbi Yossi. We assumed that you were immersed in Torah or in prayer. 
And the stranger replied, well, may Hashem always give you the benefit of the doubt, just as you did for me. Because earlier today, I met a man and I greeted him. And he turned out to be a highwayman and I had to fight for my life. And I experienced so much grief until I escaped from his clutches that I took it upon myself not to greet anyone unless I knew him. Um, it is forbidden to greet an evil man and wish him peace. And since I knew nothing of you, I did not return your greeting. But now that I've heard you, the two of you and in your discussion, I know that I can greet you. There is so much to be said about this story. For starters, um, and again, this is a lesson as we are approaching Rosh Hashanah um, and just looking into our lives that, you know, so many times we are put in a position where we judge and sometimes we judge so unfavorably. We look at circumstances, we look at people, we look at things that have happened to us, stuff that's been said or whatever it is, and we think that and we extrapolate from there um, the result of whatever it is when in truth it is not. Here Rabbi, um, uh, Rabbi Chia went and said, like, don't you think that was it, it, it was wrong? Um, maybe this man is a hooligan. How do we know? And Rabbi Yossi said, give him the benefit of the doubt. Then he said, look at him. He's not a good enough guy. He didn't agree. He didn't greet us. Rabbi Yossi went and said, give him the benefit of the doubt. And at the end, it was the benefit of the doubt that resolved this matter. So here's the first lesson. The first lesson is give the benefit of the doubt. When we are now looking at our lives and how, how we have lived our lives for the last year in particular, were there circumstances, were there times and places where we have judged, we have called called on a person, we have criticized, we have been angry when in fact perhaps we should give the benefit of the doubt. And if you go around giving the benefit of the doubt, firstly, um, and more importantly, and this is the second lesson, is that you can learn much more when you give the benefit of the doubt. You'll be a much happier person when you give the benefit of the doubt when you, rather than when you are a critical, critically angry um, person that, that, you know, that is criticizing all, all the time. Um, and more than that, give yourself the benefit of the doubt. There are times that we do fail, we do make mistakes, we do things wrong. Um, be kind, be kind. And I know there's this uh, meme and this little thing that goes around Facebook and all other social medias where it says everybody, you know, is having a rough time. Like just be kind, you don't know. And I think that this is something that we need a lot more of. Be kind to people. Everybody's carrying a pickle. Some pickles are extraordinarily difficult. Give the benefit of the doubt. Prepare. Be like Yaakov. Um, learn the lessons of how to navigate um, when you're facing your enemies. Um, but be kind. Uh, and, and the final thing that I want to just say on this note is that this entire preparation of Yaakov um, is also a preparation of how we fight the biggest battle, and that is against Ayatsa horror. We, you know, we will always get temptation in our lives. How do we overcome temptation? How do we overcome the negativity in our lives? Through prayer, um, through diplomacy, diplomacy in being kind, and then 
dividing things up and trying to overcome the difficulties in your life little bit by little bit. Rome wasn't built in a day. Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. And yes, Joseph, as you have sent in a message, he does put into practice Jacob diversification. And, um, you know, it, it, it is, it is a very, very important idea. Now let's just ver- read through the next three verses together and see what Yaakov did in terms of prayers. By Yomer Yaakov, Yaakov says, Eloke avi Abraham veloke avi Yitzchak. Hashem, Ha'umar Eli. Sorry, let me read like this. Up to Yitzchak, let me translate. Hashem said, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Yitzchak. Hashem Ha'umar Eli, Shuv la'artzacha ulamoladatecha ve'etiva ima. You are the one who told me to go back to the land of your birthplace and that you will make things go well from, uh, for me. Katonti mikol hachasadim. I am unworthy of all the kindness. Umikol haemet. And from all the faithfulness or truthfulness. Asher asita et avdecha. That you did with my, with, with, with your servant. Kibemakli avarti et ayarden hazeh. Because I crossed this Jordan with my staff. Now I have become two camps. Save me now from the hand of my brother, from Esav, because I am afraid um, of him. Lest he comes and he hits or destroys mother with child, strikes me down with mother or child. Ve'ata amarta, um, and you have said, Heitiv vimach, that you will surely do good things, you'll make things go well for me. Ve'samti et zaracha k'chol hayam asheloi yisafer merov, and that you would make my offspring like the sand grains of the sea that are too numerous to count. Now, it's, it's, it's a beautiful prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. And the one that I want to focus on again, just in our theme that it's almost Rosh Hashanah, we are doing a Cheshbon HaNefesh, is Katonti Mikol HaChasadim. I am unworthy of all the kind, of all the kindness that has happened. You know, our sages teach us that Yaakov's prayer teaches us a lesson that when a person is happy and is well off, he should recall the days of his suffering and of his poverty. And he should be aware of what it is that he's gained and thank Hashem that, um, for being with him when the going was rough. But Katonti Mikola Chasadim for me talks about gratitude. Gratitude. We've got a lot of things missing in our lives. There's a lot of things that could be much better, but there's a lot of things that we have. And when one starts to change their attitude, and look at the things that we have. You grow into a place of, 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 of peacefulness and of understanding that God runs the world. That's the first thing is that, Hey, if you're listening to this show right now, um, it means that you're alive. It means that your ears are working. Your eyes are seeing. Your nose is breathing. You've probably got internet. You're probably, you know, at home or, you know, in the car. You've got all of those things. Did you say thank you today for them? 
Katanti Mikola Chasadim says, Esav, and it's, I mean, Yaakov, and it is such a powerful thing that I'm humbled, Hashem, from everything that you have given me. Having said that, he does go on to say to Hashem, I need you to come help me. I'm in trouble. Esav's coming after me. I've crossed over the Jordan River and I've unfortunately had to split up my family. I've had to break up my family. It's going to be tough. And that's the second thing that we learn from this prayer, that a person should never give up. He should always pray for mercy, even when he has a sharp sword around his neck, says the Gomorrah. Um, and we know many times, um, particularly when we look at sickness, when people visit the sick and they see them in serious conditions, you know, it's human nature to go and say, well, should we really just be praying for these people? They're long gone. It's, it's, it's a no-hope case. It says such talk is sinful because no one is ever beyond God's help. And we can see that Yaakov prayed to God even at this very last minute. He was praying to God. Um, you know, he had this huge burden now of having to divide up his family, of having Asaph coming, marauding, whether it was for four with 400 or 160,000, as we spoke last week. He still did it. And the other is, you could see how clearly he expressed his desires when he prayed. He didn't have another brother. We know his brother was Asaph, but what did he say? Rescue me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Asaph. What was he saying? That although he only had one brother, he specifically wanted to be rescued from Asaph, from Asaph himself. Okay, and um, because he's my brother, I don't know how to protect myself from him. Why should anybody want to protect themselves from their brother? He wanted specifically to be protected from Asav, that persona that was coming for him with an absolute vengeance. What did he do? He now prepares the, the 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 place ahead, okay, um, in such a way that through a very clever way of uh, diplomacy, he would hope to relax his brother. Vayalen Shambalila, he stayed the night there. Vayikachet Habbiyado, and he took that which came into his hand. Mincha leEsav Achiv, he he stayed there the night and he started picking from his flocks for his brother, for whatever came his way. What did he have? Izim atayim, utyashim esrim, rechelim atayim, ilim esrim, gemalim, menikot b'nehem, shloshim parot, abayim uparim, asa, atanot esrim, v'ya'aris asara. He spent the night there and he took 200 female goats, 220 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 nursing camels, with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. That was going to be the gift that he was going to give to his brother. Wow, what does this all mean, and why would he be doing that in this proportion? This is 101.5 You're going to find out soon. High FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Right, let's sum up what all of this is about. So if you're looking inside uh, and you will add up all the numbers, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 
20 rams, 30 nursing cows, 30 of fowl, 40 cows, 10 bull, blah, 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 550. Why 550? Because um, we are taught that the royal line of Edom would begin 550 years before that of Bnei Israel. There is, there, there is kings both in Israel and in, in, in Edom, and they started 550 years before. Um, the other is that um, what we see with all of this is that the mixture was done in such a way, it was there was a precise number of males and females, because he knew how many females had to be there and how many males in order for the flocks to grow. So he was um, giving uh, Asav a very valuable gift um, that was agriculturally thought about, genetically thought about, um, that will allow um, Asav's uh, wealth to be to 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 grow. Most importantly, all of these, and this is. Um, really, really, really interesting is that um, he gave them in such a way that really, in truth, they all represent the various times that we will be spending in Galut, we will be spending in exile, um, all the animals representing the different um, um, nations that would come against the children of Israel at different times uh, um, during the course of our time in the diaspora, and that we are going to explore further Please, God, uh, when we get back again next week. I hope you've uh, learned some lessons or some pointers as to how Jacob's um, behavior actually can and should influence ours, that he gave us tremendous gifts. And on that note, I wish you a Shavuot of and a fantastic week ahead.